It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Antonio Damasio. Dr. Damasio is an internationally recognized leader in neuroscience. He is the Dornsai Professor of Neuroscience and Director of the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute and author of several books, including Descartes' Error, The Feeling of What Happens, and The Recent Self Comes to Mind. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Antonio Damasio. Good evening, and thank you very much for being here. Let me apologize before I go any further. Uh, for my voice, I have a very bad laryngitis, which I got two weeks ago on a trip back from Japan, uh, and I have not been able to shake it because I have been speaking almost every day. So I'm just going to make it a little bit worse, but I hope the voice will last uh, until the end of the, the talk. The occasion for this particular talk is the publication of this new book, uh, Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain. And um, I would start by saying that, you know, a mind is a really, really an astounding thing. And a mind that is endowed with consciousness is all the more so. And the true topic of this book is one more look at how is it possible for the brain to put the mind together and to add this ingredient, which we will generally call the self, and which allow, will allow that mind to become conscious. <coughs> and in order to tell you a little bit about consciousness, self, mind, and brain, um, I decided to put you in the mood and to read something from the very beginning of the book, because I think that it sets the stage. And then we'll talk about many other things. So the, in the very first chapter, uh, which is called Awakening, it runs like this. When I woke up, we were descending. I had been asleep long enough to miss the announcements about the landing and the weather. I had not been aware of myself or my surroundings. I had been unconscious. Few things about our biology are as seemingly trivial as this commodity known as consciousness, the phenomenal ability that consists of having a mind equipped with an owner, a protagonist for one's existence, a self inspecting the world inside and around, an agent seemingly ready for action. Consciousness is not mere, merely wakefulness. When I woke up two brief paragraphs ago, I did not look around vacantly, taking in the sights and the sounds, as if my awake mind belonged to no one. On the contrary, I knew almost instantly, with little hesitation, if any, without effort, that this was me, sitting on an airplane, my flying identity coming home to Los Angeles with a long to-do list before the day would be over, aware of an odd combination of travel fatigue and enthusiasm for what was ahead. No doubt being awake was indis indispensable to this state, but wakefulness was hardly its main feature. What was that main feature? The fact that <coughs> the myriad contents displayed in my mind, regardless of how vivid or well-ordered, connected with me, the proprietor of my mind, through invisible strings that brought those contents together in the forward-moving feast we call self. And, no less important, the fact that the connection was felt. There was a feelingness to the experience of the connected me. Awaken awakening meant having my temporarily absent mind returned, but with me in it. Both property, <coughs> the mind, and proprietor, me, accounted for. Awakening allowed me to re-emerge and survey my mental domains, the sky-wide projection of a magic movie, part documentary and part fiction, otherwise known as the conscious human mind. So what I'm trying to do here is uh, take the point of view of the human in relation to this phenomenon, although if you read this book, which I hope many of you will, you will discover that the point of view is much broader than that because the very second chapter of this book is about actually unicellular organisms, organisms that do not even have a brain 
do not have a mind and yet have many, many aspects of their performance that resemble that of very complex organisms such as humans or many animals in between that have brains and minds. And one of the main points about this book is to dispel the myth that we are alone in the specialness of mind and consciousness, when in fact, I believe that what we call mind and conscious mind are the current end products of a long period of evolution that has gone through a variety of living species, all the way from unicellular creatures to intermediate creatures with brains, and those creatures, those intermediate creatures, do have minds, many of them do have selves, many of them therefore qualify for consciousness. In other words, we are not alone in this particularity of having a mind that is conscious. What we do have at the same time, and this is a bit tricky, and sometimes people have difficulty making this uh, distinction, we do have a mind and a consciousness that in all likelihood, we don't need any special investigation to prove it, is, are far more complex than those of any animal. In other words, even if you take cetaceans like whales or dolphins or we take uh, chimpanzees, the likelihood of them having a mind that is anywhere as complex and refined as ours is very low and the likelihood of them having a consciousness that is exactly like ours is also very low. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a mind and that they don't have a consciousness, that they don't have a sense of self. And this is very important. So there is there are grades as we go on this long march, which is really a march of life, uh, which begins billions of years ago and which continues in highly evolved forms for many, many millions of years in biological evolution. And one of the things that is also particular about this book is that far more than in my previous work, either in articles or in books, uh, I take a very strong evolutionary perspective because I think it's only in the framework of evolution that we can make sense of what is really going on. Now let me say one more thing before I go any further, and that is that when I say self, obviously I'm here in this description, I'm coming home to Los Angeles, I awake, I get back my mind, I get back myself, I'm conscious again, and uh, I'm looking at all this from the perspective of a human being with this very, very complex equipment we call the conscious mind. Now, that doesn't mean that when you look at an animal, uh, for example, the dogs and cats that you have at home or the birds that you see flying around, <coughs> that they have a self exactly like ours. I've already said that theirs must be a different uh, self in quantity, in caliber, but not in kind. The kind is the same. It's the caliber is the, the full scope that is likely to be different. And one of the things that you will discover in this book is that I actually have a tripartite self. Uh, this is obviously seen from a biological perspective because, as you know, I'm a neurologist and neuroscientist, and what I really want to do is illuminate how the brain does these things so that we can not only resolve our curiosity about human nature, but also be able to help people who have, as a result of a neurological disease, a variety of problems of consciousness. And if we know more about how it's put together, we have a better chance of helping those people, for example, victims of stroke uh, or victims of uh, head injury that do have problems with consciousness. And we may be able to do something for those individuals. So there is, from this biological perspective, uh, a, a first level of self, which I call the proto-self. This is something very, very simple. And it is something that we have, because it's at the bottom of, of the, the edifice of self, but that many, many animals will have. And that, uh, including extremely simple animals, if you ask me if a frog or a fish has a proto-self, I would say, I bet they do. I cannot prove it in, in the final uh, 
quality of proof, which would be to get their testimony. The fish is not going to tell me, uh, nor will the frog. But we have very good reasons, which I'm happy to share with you, to presume that they do. And in fact, it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the burden is on us to disprove that they don't, rather than prove that they do by having them tell us. Okay, so there's that proto-self, and then there's a, a level immediately above, which is the core self, which already requires a complex interaction between the, the world around and the organism, and requires a relationship between the two. And then there's a much more complex level of self, which I call the autobiographical self. And when I, you see the word biography, you must realize where I'm driving. I'm driving at the fact that everyone in this room has, in addition to being aware of surroundings and organism in the here and now, this sort of a very simple picture that we have sort of moment by moment, like a, like a frame that tells us here and now I am, I exist. Uh, in addition to the proto-self, we also have something else we have a sense of personhood that is very elaborate, and we have a sense of identity. Everyone in this room knows who he or she is. Everyone in this room has a narrative of past. So you, if I call on you to say, tell me who you are, you're likely, and it doesn't make any difference who it is, going to tell me a story of when you were born, where you were born, whom to, and what kind of likes and dislikes you have, and so forth. And you're going to give me some kind of trajectory of what was it like to grow up as you and to become whatever you are, professionally and humanly. So there is a narrative of the lived past, and we share that narrative in kind, and many of us will do precisely the same thing when asked to give this account of who one is. Uh, it always takes the same form with variations. And of course, if one is a very literary person, it will come beautiful with great words. Uh, and if one is not, it will come a little bit more jagged. And if one is a politician, it will come with all sorts of embroidery uh, and lots of incredibly sophisticated descriptions of all the things you've done for your community, for your country, and so on. Um, and, uh, and if you're an actor, uh, you probably will come with a lot of aspects of vanity. And the same thing if you're a professor of neuroscience, because we're very, very people. Um, so, but there's something, you know, you could say, well, are you sure that a dog doesn't have autobiographical self? My dog does, you will say. Uh, my dog knows who I am and has a sense of what was before. And I'll grant you immediately, your dog, especially the very smart dog, has an autobiographical self, a little bit. Not quite like ours, but there is an autobiographical self. Now let me tell you something that I think your dog doesn't have. Your dog doesn't have a sense of the anticipated future. I don't think anybody in this room is going to tell me my dog is actually very preoccupied with a certain gift that he wants for Christmas. <laughs> now, there are lots of people in this room that are preoccupied with what they're going to get for Christmas and um, what they're going to do on their vacations or what they're going to do next year and what their plans are professionally, humanly, and so forth. And that is something that is really incredibly beautiful. And I think distinguishes human beings, you know, there are other distinctions, but this is very, very, very particularly human, is that we live every moment, every second of our life, poised between the lived past and the anticipated future. And the anticipated future exists as a set of plans that we have formulated, and those plans have been committed to memory. So what you have is something particularly bizarre, which is to have memories of the future. Because you can say, how can you have memories of the future? The future is the future. We have memories of the past. Not so. We have memories of the past that has been lived, but we also are, every time that you think about what you're going to do next weekend, you're going to put that in a memory, and that memory is there. So you have a memory of the future that you hope to live. 
Okay? So this is very interesting. And what is very interesting too is that this is something that is moving in time relentlessly. There's nothing we can do to stop it. In fact, if you think right now, you have already had many here and now moments since I came into this room and started talking. And that means also that your lived past has already increased by a certain number of minutes with a couple of events that correspond to the ideas that I've been trying to communicate. And by the same token, because I provoked you with this idea of the anticipated future, there's some of you that suddenly started thinking about what they're going to do this weekend. And you probably have already put in your memory something that is suddenly, ah, I'm going to do this. And there it is. But so you have this constant movement and we are at any moment caught between the past and the future. That is a very human thing. And uh, it's quite possible that some animals have a little bit of it because they have some planning. Chimpanzees do, dolphins do, but it's not obviously as robust, as ample as we have. So that's uh, just to give you the idea that we don't have a self that is a monolith. And so when I have in the title, which has its uh, literary uh, aspect, when I say self comes to mind, I'm literally and not so literally talking about the moment in which both in evolution and in each and every one of us, a self process gets added to the mind to render us conscious. But it's very important not to see the self as an object. It's not like this cup of tea. Uh, it's a process. And that process is multi-layered. Not only that, even for each and every one of us, the self can recede or come more forward depending on what we're being asked to do. So for example, if you, one of you would now start interviewing me and say, well, tell me, why, did, why is it that you became a neuroscientist? I would have to start digging in my biography and come up with intelligent answers about why I did so, what happened, what were the events. But if you're not asking me that, if I'm doing what I'm doing right now, which is giving this talk, I'm actually not concentrated on me at all. I'm concentrated on the ideas and trying to give some coherence and hopefully some beauty to the words that I'm using, rather than thinking about why I became a neuroscientist, which is not relevant. So you have this constant ebb and flow. And one thing that I would love for you to, to get, whether you read the book or not, is the idea that none of this is rigid. None of this is an object like the bottle. These are all processes. It's very dynamic and it's constantly changing. And so we can allow plenty of animals to have these simple selves and not so simple animals to have a little bit more and have a coarse self, and then allow ourselves to have plenty of autobiographical self and have also the other levels because we have the whole thing rolled, <coughs> rolled into one. Just one thing that I want to tell you about the autobiographical self. It has a remarkable repercussion in the evolution of consciousness and in the evolution of human beings because... We have to realize that once you are able to have a narrative about yourself, everything that happens to you is put in a different perspective. It's no longer something that happens right now without being connected. It's something that happens right now but has an effect on you that depends on what your past was and depends on what you hope for the future. So events have a completely different dynamic and a completely different impact depending on whether or not they are appreciated in perspective of past and future as opposed to being appreciated only in the here and now. And this by itself it not only enriches our humanity, but it allows two things that are very important to remember. One, it allows us to experience joy in a very profound way. Because if we are having a positive emotion like joy, our joy has this repercussion in the past and in the future. And it's extremely profound. So 
one thing I like to say is that if we did not have an autobiographical self, we would just have simple joys. Uh, but, but you would never be able to have, for example, what you would call bliss in, in profound states of happiness. Um, likewise, if you have pain, uh, if, if you're having pain, but your pain is put in the perspective of past and future, you also augment the way in which that pain functions and you can actually have suffering. Suffering is something that is amplified. Of course, you can have suffering if you have very bad pain anyway. But it's different to have it sort of in this moving here and now or to have it in a sense that projects into the past and into the future. And so because um, there was this possibility of making this very deep perspective of the past and future, human beings, and this is something that I propose and it's part of the last part of the book, what I propose is that this was a fundamental drive in our memory systems, in our reasoning systems, and it was probably a very strong force in the development of language. And it is because we have all that that we were suddenly plunged into realizing that, you know, life has its good things, but it also has very bad things. So the realization that we have an existential drama can only come if many individuals like us have a sense of past and future. Because if your sense, and now I'm going to be unpleasant to the fish, um, if your sense of life is a constant moving present that doesn't dip into a past history or a, a sense of future, um, you're probably not going to be terribly worried if the fish next door, if there were doors in the sea, if the fish next door is suffering and is being caught. Um, but it will have a different impact if you know that the person that you see suffering is in fact a person and you worry about that person. So all th this possibility of consciousness, I think, was the great generator of our sense of human drama and of something that comes after and is very important, which is the sense that we can do something about it. Of course, we know that what distinguishes human beings is that we have cultures and civilizations that could not have happened, in my view, if we did not have autobiographical selves. <coughs> and what was so good about those cultures and civilizations is that they were the engine to start doing something about what was wrong and start doing something also about what was right so that we could maximize well-being. So the, the best of human states is a state in which we seek consistently well-being for ourselves and for others, and a state in which we want to reduce pain and suffering so that we can be better off. Okay? And that is something that could not have happened if we did not have this deep realization of the big pickle we're in. Okay? And this is, in my view, the beginning of the great development of cultures that was especially accelerated in the past 10,000 years because of the development of agriculture and in the past 5,000 because of the development of external instruments of memory, namely writing. Once all of those things are together, then you can start evolving a culture and passing on information across the generations, not only by telling stories orally, but by telling stories in a written form that will allow people to reflect on those stories. And this leads to something very important that I want to tell you, which is really a two-part story. One is the following. You could, you could ask me, so tell me, why do we have minds and why do we have consciousness? Could we not have evolved beautifully as homeostatic robots that would regulate our lives, everything would be perfectly regulated, and we would not need to know. We would just keep on going. You know, we would have our bodies managed, you would uh, feed ourselves, we would stay away from dangers and so on without being uh, mindful and consciously mindful. And the answer to that is that yes, 
There are plenty of organisms. In fact, the most, the most populous organisms on the face of the earth, you know which they are? They're bacteria. They're single cells. They don't even have the DNA collected in a sac called a nucleus. <coughs> they're just there, single cells, and there are many, many of them. By the way, do you know that in your own bodies there are more cells, um, more bacterial cells, in your gut and in the mucosa of the uh, throat, remember, my laryngitis, uh, then there are actually cells in the tissues that form your organ systems. It's quite amazing. And we have all of these little creatures that by and large, if we maintain good health, are doing a helpful job. They help with that digestion, for example. You know, all our metabolism depends on that. If, of course, you fly too much and you talk too much, then they take over territory and they damage the mucosa and that's what you end up with. So I'm a victim of these creatures that populate my throat right now. But the point is that they don't have minds, they don't have consciousness, they don't even have a brain. And they, can, they have incredibly complex social life. They fight in groups. They create alliances. They do all of these things. There they are, regulating their individual cellular life. And yet, they are not minded. So, this argument that you could perfectly well have, um, you know, be deprived of consciousness and minds and th still survive, is okay. But... Is it really okay for us? No. It's okay for bacteria. It's okay for amoebas and paramecia and things like that. It's not okay when your bodies get very complicated and when the environment in which you live gets very complicated. And that's, of course, the drama of human existence and the drama of many other species that are very complex, such as ours. We have... Many, our organism is not made of one cell, it's made of trillions of cells. And they form tissues and organs and systems of organs. The brain is one example of one such organ. But the brain came, comes very late in the story of evolution and is already a development that aims at what? Regulating life better in a complex organism that lives or can live in a complex environment. That's the real crux of the matter. And that's why when you say, well, uh, I, have <coughs> I have life regulation in my organism. Yes, you do. But you have a life regulation that is improved mightily by the fact that you have a mind. Because when you have maps of what is going on outside, in sound or vision or touch, or affection, you're capable of giving better responses to the outside, which means that your survival chances are higher. Not only that, if you have consciousness, which means if you have a self, the self is going to concentrate attention on the organism. The self is a machine to make us concerned with our organism. And when that happens, then you have the possibility of managing your life in a much more pointed way because you're really worried, quote-unquote, as an organism for your life. And you want to do the best for that life, whether it is by seeking well-being or staying away from dangers, whether it is by going after an opportunity or deciding on a conflict. So consciousness and uh, minds prior to consciousness are instruments of survival and of well-being. And what I wanted to tell you is that once you have this very complex level of autobiographical self and you have cultures and civilizations, what you also develop is something quite interesting. It's an idea in this last part of the book that we have something like a socio-cultural form of life regulation. Once we had the instruments of culture, what did we develop? We developed moral systems, religions, the arts, uh, science, technology, social and political organization, economics. All of these things that you normally think are sort of tumbling from somewhere without a cause are in fact 
the results of extremely directed inventions of human beings in order to make their life better and the life of others better as well. That's why you have justice systems. That's why we have medicine and science and technology. It's not for the fun of it. It's because at heart, all of those activities are aimed at improving life, making life better and more manageable. Let me just close by telling you a couple of things that are in this book and that are different and uh, will definitely be controversial for some people, as if it weren't enough, the business of the animals. There's another one. And that is normally people attribute the source of consciousness to the cerebral cortex, this very highly evolved part of the brain, which is, in fact, the most distinctive part of the brain when you come to humans. It's bigger than in any other animal. It's more organized. The circuitry is more complex. So reasoning in the old-fashioned way, you say, well, humans have consciousness, animals don't. Humans have a larger cerebral cortex, therefore the cerebral cortex provides consciousness. This, of course, is perfectly absurd as a way of reasoning, and it's not founded in good science. And what I want you to know, and this is expressed here very importantly in the book, it's one of the main ideas, is that all of the fabrication of the proto-self and the basic parts of the self depends not at all on the cerebral cortex, but rather on the brain stem, which is one of the oldest parts of our brain, and in fact, one that is designed in the model of, guess what? Fish and reptiles. And that's something that we share in the general design. So it's very important, and I point out the, the fact that in order to build a human self or the self of an, another species, you need to have something that connects with feelings, something that I call in the book primordial feelings, and our contention is that the generator of those primordial feelings in living species that have organized brains is actually at the level of the brainstem. Now, sure enough, you could not be here listening to me and following my ideas, and I could not be here looking at you and interacting with you if I didn't have a cerebral cortex, because all the maps that register you visually or register you in terms of sound when you ask me questions need to be made at the level of the cerebral cortex. They actually begin to be made lower down, but the most refined ones occur at the level of the cerebral cortex. So the important thing is to think that this is actually about a dialogue between a very old part of the brain that we share with many other species and a very new part of the brain, which is the one that allows us to have all this refined operation of mind and that allows us to become Mozarts or Shakespeare's or whatever in terms of either science or the arts. And let me just close with a very brief quote. Uh, let's uh, end with poetry. And I'm going to give you a quote that is uh, in the epigraph, of the, the first epigraph of the book, which comes from a very major poet. The poet is Fernando Pessoa. Uh, how many people in the room know Fernando Pessoa? Good, there are some hands. Lovely. Uh, we, you, you deserve a prize. Uh, anyway, Fernando Pessoa is not especially well known uh, in the English language. Uh, especially in the English language in the United States, although now there are wonderful translations. He's otherwise known in many other languages, especially in, in French. He's originally Portuguese, although he was Portuguese and English, and he wrote in both languages. Uh, but he wrote most of his major poetry in Portuguese. So I'm going to give you a, a translation of one, a couple of lines uh, that come from a, a book, a very famous book of his called The Book of Disquiet. And he says, my soul is like a hidden orchestra. I do not know which instruments grind and play away inside of me. Strings and harps, timbals and drums. I can only recognize myself as symphony. And the very beautiful words. And the, you know, Fernando Pessoa was a, a marvelous poet that wrote under many different aliases. And he created entirely different selves 
for the different authors under whose names he wrote. He invented a biography. He invented a style. They had different ages. They even had different signs of the zodiac. And he wrote under all these voices, and that's one of the, this was actually discovered much uh, after his, uh, his death, and that's why he's now become a major figure in modern poetry, uh, although he died in 1935. And uh, what he was doing, in fact, he was doing a literary, artistic investigation of the self-process. And he has numerous references to self, so I think he's, he's a very interesting... I always think of two people when I think about self and consciousness, and one is Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is a little bit like Pessoa in all the characters that he invented, uh, except that they were in the form of theater, they were in plays. And here, with Pessoa, it's in the form of poetry, and in one case, prose, which is the, the book of, uh, of Disquiet. But at any rate, he's calling attention to something very beautiful, is that the self is not an object. The self is made of a combination of elements. And the, the, the analogy to the symphony is ideal because, as I point out very often in the book, when we think about how the brain makes a mind, you have to think in musical terms. And you have to think of many, many musicians in an orchestra that are playing and that are producing something that comes to us in an ensemble form, but is in fact made by different components. And if many of those components fail, you're not going to get the result. Now, last word. The beauty of our minds is that, unlike the symphony, where you have the conductor looking at an audience, and you have musicians that have rehearsed a score and that actually have a score that they can follow, our minds and our conscious minds are being made as we go. There's no score. We are making it as we go. So the analogy to the symphony falls apart when we realize this incredible beauty that we are making it up as we go. And that there's no conductor either, because the conductor is in of itself an illusion that we create. Okay? Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, we are creatures of habit, and we are made of chemicals, and our brain responds to chemicals. I want you to comment on uh, the evolution of, let's say, dopamine, serotonin, in the order of things, starting with bacteria. The operation of neurons, that is, nerve cells, <coughs> in our nervous system is entirely dependent on chemical transmission. So when we have one cell, one neuron, acting on another via a synapse and making that next neuron active, you have both an electrical process and a chemical process because the electrical conduction in the axon of the neuron leads to the release of a molecule, a pack of molecules of a certain transmitter depending on the cell and on the system. What is very interesting is that the, although these are building blocks and they have enormous impact in how the final product uh, uh, comes to be, uh, the fascinating thing is that it is the arrangement of the systems. If you go back to, the, to the, the symphony, it's the way you place the musicians and the kind of different instruments you have that is going to allow you to produce this score or that score. Uh, it is not, so you cannot explain minds uh, or consciousness at the level of neurons or at the level of, uh, say, neuromodulators, the, the chemical molecules. You need to explain by large ensembles working together. Um, on the other hand, we do have those chemicals and they do need to be accounted for. And we know that because they very often are regional, they can lead to certain conditions and they can lead to certain problems or to, to improve the process. Final point that I want to make is that most of those molecules are very ancient. In fact, when you go back to a variety of single-cell organisms, you either find the very same transmitters that we have today in our brain 
or find variations of those transmitters. And you've, you can find that in a little creature like a fly. Uh, and of course, the fish and the reptiles that I was talking about. So those molecules have been conserved all along. What, it, what has really changed and blossomed is the general organization and the sophistication of the system. And just one more uh, um, uh, addition to, your, to, to the answer. Uh, th sometimes the, these molecules are, are very regional in the brain. Uh, to give you an example, for example, we, we, we know that people, if they lose dopamine within a particular system, which is known as the basal ganglia, they will actually develop Parkinson's disease. It's extremely regional. Uh, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that dopamine is only there. Dopamine is delivered to lots of other parts of the brain. And we know that dopamine is also very important when you deal with reward systems. Except that the, the part of dopamine that is important for movement control and whose absence creates Parkinson's disease comes from a different part of the brain stem than the ones that are important in the reward system that not only come from a different part, but also then go to other parts of, sub, uh, of um, subcortical nuclei and frontal lobe. Thank you for your question. Um, Michael Kaufman. Is there a difference in kind between what goes on in the brain stem and what goes on in the upper cere uh, cerebrum, for instance, a chord played by the neurons in the brain stem? Yeah. is still basically on a basic chemical biological level the same thing that's happening. The way the neurons function is the same. The availability of, uh, of molecules to make them work is in general the same. What is different is the topography, the arrangement of the different systems in the brainstem and the cortex in the functions that they're called upon to performing. So in the brainstem, you have mainly an organization of nuclei. So you have packs of neurons that at a certain point have layers and have a topographical organization which corresponds largely to different organ systems in the body because guess what? <coughs> a very main function of the brainstem is to regulate life, period. That is, that's the reason why the reptiles and the fish have it, because they're there to regulate life long before you have this business of the cerebral cortex with which you can have all sorts of thoughts and ideas and complex reasoning and eventually language. So that's the job, is to regulate life. In other words, to get signals from the body saying, look, th there's something wrong here. Uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not doing, I'm not creating insulin, for example. Do something about it. And then the brain stem, together with the hypothalamus, will do that. Okay? So it's a system of regulating life in the body of an organism. When you come to the cortex, there's no such call on the cortex. What the cortex is being asked to do is create map upon map of everything on the face of the earth. So you create visual maps and auditory maps and maps of, for example, the rotational forces around us or maps of text so that I can appreciate the texture of this table versus the texture of the paper here or maps of olfaction or of gustatory and so on. So you're just getting all the tokens with which you can generate a mind process. It's very different. And the reason why you need the two things together is that since in evolution, you know, evolution is extremely lazy. Nature doesn't like to repeat stuff. So if, if it has something that is working well, it holds on to that and it goes and creates something else. So since the brainstem does a pretty good job of regulating our lives, like our circulation, our heart rhythm, our breathing, and so on, the cerebral cortex has been apportioned the task of mapping out the world and creating images. That's it. So now you need to get the two together in order to have a conscious mind. You need to have the feeling that is born out of the brainstem to go and mark what is happening in the cerebral cortex. Then you become conscious. Okay? Thank you for your question. In reading Self Comes to Mind last week, or at least two different passages I wrote in the margins, Julian Jaynes. 
Yep. And then lo and behold, I get to your final chapter and you're explicitly referencing the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Wonderful. It's controversial in a whole bunch of ways, but I'd like you to specifically address the issue of the rate of brain evolution, which is one of the objections to, uh, there's many objections, that's only one of the prime objections to a James's thesis. James was a, a wonderful thinker and uh, for those who may not know, he wrote a beautiful book, he just mentioned it, the origins of consciousness in the bicameral mind. I can't quite, yeah, the breakdown. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very beautiful. You should read it uh, because it, it transports you to a different time. It transports you to the Homeric poems uh, because he mainly made the arguments on the distance between one and the other poem of Homer uh, and how consciousness would have been literally hitched together from one point to the other, and the difference in time, although of course nobody knows when Homer wrote the poems, is not that big. But he was writing about um, uh, different things uh, in the Iliad uh, than he was in the, uh, in the uh, Odyssey. So uh, th th that's basically the argument that James, who was a very good psychologist and obviously a man interested in history, was trying to make. So. I think, the, you know, uh, so I, as you can realize, I, I admire him very much. I think my problem with James, if I have one, is that I think he gives too much emphasis to language as the organizer of consciousness. And he gave, at the time that that book was published, which was in the 70s, when it first came out, it gave many people the idea, which people were perfectly ready to adopt, that language, require, uh, language was required for consciousness to emerge. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that all of these processes that are related to the proto-self and the core self emerge without, without language and emerge without memory, which is the reason why they're so well distributed in other species. Then language comes very late and does give the big impetus to yet another level that is much higher. That's the only thing that I would... Um, that I think he left a little bit unclear and can, it can be controversial. Uh, the rate at which all of this is evolved is, of course, a complete mystery. Uh, we, we, we definitely know that the, the latter part of the story um, must have been very recent. And by recent, in relation to evolution, I'm talking about tens of thousands of years. Um, as opposed to the appearance of, say, the proto-self, which is going to be in the millions of years. So we, we have, uh, I think that the, we have the problem with cultural instruments. We have the problem of how to date them, and that's obviously very difficult. We have some landmarks like, for example, the caves of Lascaux. Uh, we know the time. You know, you can place some of these things 17,000 years ago. If you want to be a little bit more liberal, you go to, say, funerary architecture, like creation of tombstones. And then that could take us to 100,000 years. But of course, nobody knows. And nobody knows when language emerged either. It's perfectly, I mean, there are all sorts of debates, but it's, it's, it would be foolhardy to say it emerged 20,000 years ago or 30 uh, or 50. Uh, you know, it's certainly not something that is going to have been there uh, in the current form for more than tens of thousands of years uh, ago. You talked a lot about how the self allows us to focus on ourselves as an organism and to protect ourselves and take care of ourselves. But as we see in self-behavior, we see self-destructive behavior, yeah. drug abuse, you know, hurting yeah. oneself. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the distinction or the, the how the self and the mind argue against one another. I'm currently reading The Happiness Hypothesis, which talks a, a yeah. little bit about how Buddha talks about the elephant and the rider, how the mm -hmm. self and the mind um, battle one another. So I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about maybe the biological roots of that. That's a wonderful Thank question. You. And I'm glad you're beautiful because it you know, <laughs> puts the two things together. Okay, so um, what you need to realize is that we are not um, put together as an engineered system. It's a very, very big difference. So we're put together by all of these uh, sometimes very casual, sometimes very fuzzy, definitely very messy, natural processes. So we end up being this uh, conjunction of mechanisms that very often are at, at conflictual 
in conflictual operation. So take, take emotions in general. We have a core of emotions, the, the, the fundamental emotions such as anger, happiness, sadness, uh, disgust, um, surprise. These emotions very often can be very unruly and be in direct conflict with other emotions that were evolved later, like the social emotions, that include compassion and shame and pride and uh, uh, embarrassment and contempt and admiration. So, depending on how the situation is going to incite the emotion to operate, you can get very different responses, and you can get responses that are absolutely self-destructive. And in fact, most of the things that come out of anger and aggression have turned out to be very self-destructive. Then you have another layer that you need to factor in, is that we did not come into being as you know, nice people living in Santa Monica or Westwood. We came into being in small tribes that were fighting against each other, that had sort of an ideal size of about anywhere between 15 and 30. And there was a tribe that was looking for space, looking for habitat, looking for food. And then there was another tribe. And the way to solve the problems of the tribes was to fight it out. So there are things that are part of our human nature that are pretty horrible, the same way that there are things that are pretty wonderful. And so we are this complete mess of conflictual operations. Now, the, the, the good news, this is all the bad news. Uh, the, the good news, and of course, I mean, when you look, I mean, take, take, take the history of the 20th century. I mean, how can you accept that there are people that were at certain hours of the day listening to Beethoven and Wagner uh, and were actually great admirers of Mozart as well, sometimes even playing their own instruments. And then at certain hours of the day, they were burning other people and killing them mercilessly without any kind of human respect. You know, these kinds of conflicts are you know, rife in, in history. I think, by the way, they're diminishing now, but they're diminishing because something happened, which is culture. If we had not developed culture, we would never have a diminution of violence and a diminution of lack of respect. But we have that culture, and through education, we have the possibility of shaping these things. For example, while we're all born with sort of distributed capacities for anger and aggression and for compassion and generosity and admiration, it's quite clear that education can allow you to learn to control aggression and can allow you to maximize the situations in which you show compassion or, you know, or we, in which you show uh, admiration for another. So we have an enormous chance through education, through the process of acculturation, of changing, you know, changing the buttons that are being pressed by society and by the events uh, of life. And I think it's very interesting. I mean, we, we're actually crossing a very, very, you know, one of these crossroad points. I mean, you don't need to be very smart to realize, you know, you look at, at politics and you find conflict, incredible conflict, not just in the United States, but in Europe and elsewhere. You find huge problems that have to do with economics, they have to do with financial markets, and so on. And how this is going to be solved is obviously a test of how smart people will be and how well-educated they will be and how capable they will be to, uh, to stop conflict when conflict will de degenerate in something horrible like war or other things that are just as bad as war that have to do with inequity and uh, bad treatment of other human beings. So I think that the good news is that we can't control this. Ali Vinizer, good evening, uh, Professor. Um, my question for you is, uh, there's a great little book by uh, Gerald Edelman called The Mind is Wider Than the Sky, and he talks about the substrate of consciousness uh, having to do with re-entrant phenomena, basically neurons looking back on themselves. Yep. Could you be kind of to comment on that? Absolutely. Uh, I, I like very much, and in other books, he, he wrote about that in articles and <coughs> in other books, <coughs> not just in that one. Um, the notion of re-entry is actually something that is 
dealt with at several points in this book, uh, sometimes actually with the citation of uh, Jerry Edelman, who's a very good friend of mine. Uh, and there's it, it another name for it that I prefer to reentry. Reentry always makes me think, you know, I, there used to be a, a room in the Art Institute in Chicago where we lived for, ma for many years, and you would come to this room in the exhibition and it would, set, it would say, no reentry. So every time I encounter the word reentry, I remember that, uh, that. So I don't like to use the word reentry, although Jerry uses it in a perfectly intelligent way, provided he explains what he means. And what he means is recursion. What he means is the following. So when you project from one neuron to this neuron, you have the possibility of projecting back from that neuron to the previous neuron. So that's what, that's what the, the, the notion is all about. Now. Can we have consciousness without reentry? Probably not. Reentry is an incredibly pervasive phenomenon in the organization of our brains. And you find in chapter six of Self Comes to Mind, there's a whole discussion of the architecture that we require for memory. It's the architecture of convergence and divergence. And convergence and divergence is expressing recursion. And in another chapter, I think four and five, I discussed the fact that the nuclei in the brainstem that organize the big connection between the body and the brain are nuclei that are organized in a recursive principle. So there is plenty of reentry. So the answer is that, of course, it's needed. And, uh, and I think that probably Jerry Edelman was the first person to call attention, or one of the first, to call attention to these phenomena as important in the general organization of the brain. But I don't think it's only for consciousness. It's, it's, it goes beyond consciousness. Okay. Andy Luchter. Um, uh, if I understood you correctly, one of the um, distinguishing features of the human mind um, or of human social relations was altruism, that is, creating things for the betterment of others. Yeah. Um, I would argue that is something that you see probably in other primates in, in dogs, even though yeah. I don't have a dog. Absolutely. Um, so when do you think in social relations you start to see altruism emerging? And is that, is that something, it sounds like you're not saying that it necessarily distinguishes humans. No, but no. something no, that you no, tend no, to see more generally. No, even, even bacteria exhibit incredible phenomena of cooperation or aggression and, and, and war. No, what I, what I, the, the distinction that I make though is the following. I would say that a lot of the altruism that you see in non-human species is obviously run by our genomes, <coughs> by, <all> the ge <coughs> by the genomes of those species. And it is something that resembles a moral system, but it's not necessarily, or in fact it is not a deliberated moral system. The big difference is that in humans, when you're altruistic, you can do it not just because your genes tell you to do so, but because you have decided that you ought to do so. You know, it's really the question, uh, you know, one very good example is violence. For example, violence is actually extremely conducive to uh, species surviving. You know, they're, they're obviously, when you fight one group against the other and you conquer the other group and you conquer territory, that's good. So you will increase survival. So there are a number of things that happen because of the way genes and the brains, organized by genes, are prepared. But that doesn't mean that anybody in that species was thinking about what to do. And even some human behavior is not deliberated. Now, when we today, when we decide that we should not have violence, we decide on a very, very deliberate note. And it's quite interesting that violence has actually been declining. Of course, there's plenty of violence in, in, in the world as we know it, but if you compare violence today with violence in the 16th century, you, you, it's, you know, it's a world apart. Now, why is that happening? Well, it's happening because people have decided that violence, just like child, uh, child labor, uh, is not a good thing. You have many human beings working together reflecting, said, this is not a good thing. We're just going to say no to this. 
and they have instituted laws and mechanisms of behavior that will prevent that from happening. Uh, you know, take exactly the same thing with slavery. Slavery is incre- incredibly convenient, but we have decided that it is not acceptable. But you know, it's not our genes that are telling us to be altruistic and reject slavery. Slavery was rejected only after many centuries of being practiced, and then when, once we decided very consciously, very knowledgeably, and very logically that we were doing something harmful. In the end, something har- harmful even to ourselves, because I will end on a Spinozian note. So your question is good, because it allows me to go back to my great friend Spinoza. Spinoza always said that the reason why you should be altruistic is that you want to favor yourself. And the idea was that if you do not care for the other, you're going to eventually harm yourself. Uh, And and that's a very beautiful idea, one of the reasons why uh, Spinoza was so brilliant in his thinking. Uh, And that's something that sometimes people don't seem to understand, is that if they're not going to be good for others, they're going to be very bad for themselves. Maybe not now, but later. Okay, thank you so much.